12, 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruits good, or make the tree bad and its fruits bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Here, if you want to come up, come pray. God, thank you for Aaron, um, the time that he put in to prepare, to lead us through this passage this week. Um, God, we pray that you would help us hear what you have for us to hear today through this passage and through the things that Aaron has been thinking about, praying about, that you've put on his heart. Um, just help us to respond, to put into action the calls that Aaron gives us this morning, um, and ultimately just help us to know you and love you more. We need you, we love you, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Super strange. 
uh, that I want to have them put on the buffet. All my bros said I wouldn't do it, so obviously next time I went, I had to do it. Uh, the cashier asked me if there was any specific request I had for the buffet. I said, yeah. Let me get a pizza with pepperoni, pineapples, and pickles. <coughs> we probably just finished up like a preaching class where the lesson was like on how to do alliterative sermon points or something like that. And that probably wasn't even like the weirdest order we'd ever heard though, because he was just like, yeah, sure, he'll be up in like 10, 15 minutes. It is actually a decent pizza. But hey, that is part of the beauty of the buffet. You can get whatever you want. Maybe that sounds gross to you. That's okay. But in four days, we're all headed towards the best buffet of the year. Thanksgiving dinner. It's fantastic. Turkey, potatoes, mac and cheese, rolls, and that salad that your cousin's aunt brings every year. You know what salad I'm talking about. It's that salad that, it's that thing that us Midwesterners call salad, but in reality it's like 60% jello, 30% whipped cream, and 0% leafy green vegetables. It's that thing that like most of us will just like put half a scoop on our plate just to be polite. But not us, not you and me. We're not wasting any valuable plate real estate on Thursday. But that's the beauty of a buffet. You get to avoid anything that you don't want. Perhaps there's no better illustration for the way we exercise our autonomy and express our individuality in our culture today than the buffet. As much as I want of whatever I want, without the requirement to take on anything that is burdensome or offensive to me. The buffet is all about pleasing us, catering to the desires of our hearts. In our sermon passage today, we'll see Jesus continue his rebuke of the Pharisees that we began looking at last week. On top of that, he'll share with us some sobering realities uh, with the Pharisees and with us that speaks to the relationship between our hearts and our relationship to God. Ultimately, what I want us to take away this morning is that Jesus challenges us to clarify our convictions about him and have our hearts changed by him. Are we all in? Are we all out on Jesus? Because there's no buffet-style picking and choosing. There's no fence-sitting on the edge of God's kingdom. Just to, so just to recap a little bit. Last week, Pastor Kevin, he walked us through this uh, really tense and challenging passage on what's been called the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. In the preceding verses, what Jesus calls blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We saw Jesus encounter a man who, due to demonic oppression, was unable to see or speak. Jesus cast the demons out of him, and then the debate, the debate begins. Some people in the crowd start to wonder, like, is, is, could this be him? The son of David? The promised one? The Messiah? And the Pharisees, as usual, they're going to put a stop to that kind of speculation. Only in this instance, they're particularly intense about their denunciation of Jesus. It's not just that they deny that he's the Messiah, but they swing that pendulum as far as it can go. Like, the pendulum flies off the little thing that's holding on. And 
so this earns then a particularly sharp response from Jesus, of which our passage today is a part of. If you look at your Bible, you'll probably see a new heading that separates verses 32 and 33. But what we don't see is any kind of transitionary phrase separating sections. Something like, after this, Jesus went on from there and did this thing. Or, you know, the next day, he and his disciples went and blah, blah, blah. So, this is just one stream of thought with the previous passage. Kind of like when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, there's one big connected thing. So let's take a look at it. Jesus uses a tree and fruit metaphor in verse 33. He says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So trees and fruits, uh, they're pretty common metaphors within the Bible, uh, which makes sense given that most of the people of the ancient world live you know, mostly agriculturally based lives. So let's sit here for a minute, because at first glance, it's not entirely clear who or what Jesus is referring to. Who's the tree? What's the fruit? Luckily, this isn't the first time that Jesus has used a tree-fruit metaphor. Let's go back just a couple chapters in Matthew 7 and see how else he uses this illustration. This will give us a clue as to what he's saying in response to the Pharisees. Matthew 7 goes like this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by the fruits. In, this, in that passage, Jesus shares some evaluative tools for identifying false prophets. The primary thing being, look at what is produced by the ministry. This may sound like, you know, they may sound like fellow sheep, look like fellow sheep on the outside, but what are they really doing? Are they producing thorns which harm and choke the life out of others? Are they really wolves who pray and take advantage of God's people? In the tree-fruit analogy, the trees are the teachers, and the fruit is what is produced by the work. Back to Matthew 12. Jesus casts out a demon, restores this man's ability to see and to speak. What do the Pharisees claim? They say he's only able to do this because he's empowered by the devil. Now based on the Bible's own criteria, they're calling Jesus a false prophet. By way of the metaphor then, Jesus is actually inviting the Pharisees to judge him properly. Jesus is the tree, and his ministry is the fruit. He says to them, make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. That is, clarify what you think of both me and my ministry. Call it all good, call it all bad. The Pharisees see this astounding exorcism, something that is undeniably good. But then they still turn to attack Jesus. They see good fruit, but then call the tree bad. Jesus says, they're not making sense. You can't have it both ways. The Pharisees are trying to treat Jesus and his ministry like a buffet line. They walk by, picking up a little bit of 
everything that they like. Oh, yeah, a little bit of exorcism. Demons fleeing. That's great. Oh, man, big old scoop of this man being restored to full health. They get to the end of the line, but then they start to gag. They're just appalled that the main course turns out to be Jesus is the son of David. Jesus, we cannot rightly identify or produce 
things that are good. To summarize all of that, is the principle sandwiched between Jesus' two metaphors. Simply this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The kind of tree we are determines the kind of fruit that we produce. The kind of treasure we store up determines what we value and share with others. What we say about God, about others, about ourselves even, is reflective of what's going on inside of our hearts. Our last couple of verses in this passage uh, may be the most challenging or potentially confusing out of all of them. Let's read them. Verse 36 and 37. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus concludes his response to the Pharisees with this stern warning. What is Jesus teaching us here? At Cars, you know, we're a Protestant church. So that means, like, on the theological level, one of the foundational things that we believe the Bible teaches us is that our justification before God is based on our faith in Jesus alone, not our good works. Justification being um, our right standing or our right relationship before God. If you're familiar with those terms, then what Jesus is saying here might be confusing, even troubling, justified by our words. How do we understand that in light of what the rest of the Bible teaches us about how we relate to God? Let's zoom out real quick, refresh ourselves on you know, what the Bible says about justification by faith before we zoom back into our passage today. See where it fits. So just quickly follow on the, on the screen. We'll have a few passages back to back. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then Galatians 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then also Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. Cars, church, friends, and family, you cannot earn your salvation from God. You can only receive it as a gracious gift. And the only way that we receive this grace is by exercising faith in Jesus. That is, believing in Him, trusting in Him, pledging our allegiance to Him. When you do this, you become spiritually united to Jesus. That means you get to share in the death that He's already died and having the sure hope in sharing his righteousness and his resurrection on the last day when God judges us. And therein lies the grounding for our justification. We get to share in the right standing that Jesus has already secured before God the Father. Now, there's a, there's a ton more that I could say related to that. Um, the way 
God saves us is truly, it's ordered, it's multifaceted. But just for today, I wanted to hit that concept of justification, since that's what Jesus brings up here in our verses. Back into our passage, how does Jesus' teaching here fit into the rest of the New Testament's teaching? We're not saved by works. So how do words fit into this? Or words works? What Jesus is not talking about here, clarify this real quick, is that there's some kind of mystical combination of spiritual salvation words that we must recite in order to be saved. If you grew up in you know, uh, evangelical church like I did, you may have had some experiences of anxiety related to praying a sinner's prayer in order to become a Christian. For those of you who didn't grow up in that context, a uh, sinner's prayer was kind of like that moment that you decided that you wanted to be a Christian, and so your Sunday school teacher, your youth pastor, someone would give you this kind of already fleshed out, pre-written prayer um, that you would you would recite with them. That was kind of your entry point into the faith. So, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, I don't think. Um, but we can get hung up on specific words and phrases. Uh, I'm probably not the only one in here who maybe went through seasons, especially during my adolescence, where I felt like a compulsive need to repeat this prayer to ensure that I had been truly saved. Especially if I had done something in that day that I knew was sinful. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. We're not justified because we pray a certain prayer with a certain word in a certain way. We're justified by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. Rather, we need to relate this to Jesus' two analogies. The fruit we produce, our words, or our good works, are only a result of the kind of tree that we are. So when Jesus says that we're justified or condemned by our words, the link is highly implicit that we're, we're justified in our words and that the way we use our words reveals the kind of tree that we are, the heart that we have towards sin. Are we still in our sin entirely, or has Jesus begun to transform us based on our union with him? Matthew Bates describes the relationship between our faith and our works or our words. He says, no one is saved by their works. And at the same time, no one is saved without works. Because our faith, which transforms our work and our words, run parallel to one another. But the order is important. We're not saved by the works. But if we're expressing faith in Christ, we will have works. We will do the works that God has prepared for us to do. So let's talk about where we go from here. What does this passage have to say to us today and in our day-to-day lives? I think we, we should see two main takeaways here. First, we must clarify our convictions. Second, we must watch our words. There's those alliterative sermon points I was taught in school. Let's break these down. First, clarifying our convictions. We see the opposite of this in the hearts of the Pharisees. 
They're wishy-washy. They're inconsistent. They treat Jesus like a buffet. Jesus 
that he is God's chosen king over creation. The one who deserves all glory. The one who deserves our undivided allegiance. The one who deserves our full obedience. The one who has authority not just to advise us, but to direct us. At some point or another, everyone who is confronted with who Jesus is must clarify their convictions. Is Jesus who he says he is? And if he is, will we follow him as he calls us to? Second, then, we must watch our words. Now, I don't want you to hear me say that as a, a legalistic thing. Like we already talked about, this is not specific words in a specific way that get us into God's good graces. It's only Jesus who does that. But rather, we can watch our words, be aware of our words, and use them as a diagnostic tool. That's what Jesus says that our words do, after all. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our dear brother Eric shared this quote on social media a while back. I think it illustrates well how our hearts overflow. This is from Haruki Murakami of the Kafka on the shore, he writes beautifully, your heart is like a great river after a long spell of rain spilling over its banks. All signposts that once stood on the ground are gone, inundated and carried away by that rush of water. And still, the rain beats down on the surface of the river. Every time you see a flood like that on the news, you tell yourself, that's it. That's my heart. And I love the imagery of the flooded river. We maybe, maybe we picture Jesus' teaching like a cup that's just filled a little bit too full. The drink goes over the rim, and so what do we do? We just you know, move the cup over here, we grab a paper towel, wipe it up. It's like it never happened. But with the flooded river pouring over its base, the source and the overflow remain one and the same. And it's not just that. But our careless words can have consequences more like a flooded river than a spilled cup. A single paper towel may well be sufficient to repair the damage of a spilled cup. A little bit of stain removal. But when a river overflows, major damage is often done. People can be displaced or hurt. And sometimes monuments are set up as a reminder how high up the floodwaters rose that day. A spilled cup is a nuisance, but a flooding river is destructive. Most of us are going to be traveling somewhere for Thanksgiving this week. And probably one of the greatest holiday stressors that people experience is related to uh, you know, family dynamics around the dinner table. Most of us are probably aware of this offensive uncle trope at this point. It exists because a lot of our families have someone who's maybe a little bit too radical in their thinking, a little bit too outspoken, and they want to make sure everyone at the table knows what they think about every issue. That person who is careless with their words or even intentionally offensive around the table. And it's easy to spot at the other end of the table. But remember, our words 
be too quick to overlook the offensive uncle in ourselves. This week I went to uh, see my brother perform in the, the final concert for the University Singers on campus. It was great. The performance they did, it was a retelling of the life and impact of a guy named Matthew Shepard. Matthew Shepard was a gay college student at the University of Wyoming who was beaten and left for dead on the prairie. It was a hard, uh, hard concert to listen to content-wise at various points. But there was a song in the middle that really stuck out to me. The song, you know, it, it fully condemns the two guys who, uh, you know, killed Shepard. But the song introduces a little bit of messiness, gray. It pushed back against the idea that there's only ever good guys and bad guys in our world. It's from the, the song is from the perspective of someone talking to the two men who murdered Shepard. Outraged at the brutality that they had inflicted, but then pausing for self-reflection. Am I like that too? Is there hatred in my heart? Would I be willing to act violently towards someone like you did? We grew up the same here in Wyoming. You've had the same experiences as me. And as the ensemble sang, you start to realize that we're not as different from the people we find despicable as we like to think we are. For most of us, that's probably never going to escalate to murder. But our actions, our words, reveal what's really happening in our hearts. We're quick to dismiss our own words. When we get mad, we say something off the cuff, we pass over it quickly. Ah, come on, that's, that's not really who I am. I was just tired. I was just hungry. I was just angry. But that's not really me. Jesus says, no, that, that's the realest you. The words reveal the heart. Now we struggle with sin our whole life. We can be a Christian, a saint, as the New Testament calls us. And we'll still experience this lifelong struggle against sin until the last day. But Jesus says that we'll be held accountable for the words that we think are careless or insignificant. Because words always reveal what's in our heart. Perhaps you look into your own life. I look into my own life. I see this marked by continuous arguments, outbursts, strained relationships because of the things that we say. I'm not perfect in this regard. That reveals a heart where pride or anger, bitterness, hatefulness may still reside. It's a place where God's Holy Spirit needs to continue to transform us. But what's to be done? We've already looked at how the Bible teaches it's not our worst or our worst that get us back into right standing before God. So what is it that gives us hope? good news for you, church. Just as words reveal the sin in our hearts and bring consequences
condemnation on us, there is a word that justifies us. What do I mean? It's not a word that we speak. Rather, it's the word that comes from God himself. The Bible tells us this in the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing, not anything made, was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is this word? Who is the source of light and life? Church, it is Jesus. When you and I are put in stressful situations, when we experience the difficulties of life, the words that spill out of us reveal the sin that remains in our hearts. But what about God? What overflows from God when he sees what our sin has done to his world? When we fill it with violence and hatred and injustice, when he sees that our relationships are marked by pride and power plays, when he hears the words we say about ourselves, people, a person that God has made and who God loves, when God is confronted with the evil in our world, his word spills out too. But it's not a careless word, it's the caring word. It's the word that is gentle and humble in heart. It's the word that brings rest. It's the word that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and filled with faithful love. It's the word that still promises to bring justice. When God is confronted with evil, Jesus overflows into our world. Amen. On a theological level, we might often remind ourselves that Jesus is like God. Jesus is God. He's eternal, all-powerful, and more. But how often are we reminding ourselves that God is like Jesus? The Bible tells us Jesus is the shiniest part of God's glory. That's Hebrews 1. Jesus himself says that if we know what he's like, then we know what his Father is like. When life gets difficult and confusing and God seems distant and hard to understand, remember that God is like Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. God is near because he came near in the person of Jesus. He sacrificed himself for the wicked words of his people. Promises to make them right with himself and raise them to new life and to be near to them by sending his spirit to be with his followers. Christ, this is the good news that we need when we are overcome by the flooded river of careless words in a difficult world. Jesus is the rescuer that we need. Pray with you. Thank you this morning for your word to us. We bless you, we praise you for showing us what we're like through our Bibles, but even more through your Son. He's a gift that we could never earn, the salvation that we didn't know we needed until you showed him to us. God, be with us today, be with us this week. Give us clarity about who Jesus is and whether or not we will follow him. 
loves to watch our words, God, especially as we go home and see family or experience difficult conversations. Convict us when we sin, with what we say. And God, may those be signposts that are not washed away, but that always point us back to you. Lord, as we continue to worship this morning, would you grant us unity around your table? Deepen our sense of union with you and grow us closer to one another as a spiritual family. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray today. Amen. Cars, we...